there's a lot of talk right now uh, amongst parents, Gen Y and Gen X, um, about the importance of uh, kids learning to code. Mm. But as AI improves, um, I think coding is going to become more and more automated. And so I don't necessarily know if that is a good long-term um, career uh, yeah. proposition. It's, it's more about focusing on soft skills. Uh, it's, yeah. it's about focusing on uh, creativity. It's about focusing on pursuits that are, uh, at least for the moment, um, very specifically human Mm. Uh, things that we know that either the machines can't replicate yet or won't be able to replicate well or won't be able to replicate it for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, so if you're, you know, um, if, if you're a driver, I think they're first in the firing line. We've already seen blue-collar workers be pushed out of factories in, in exchange for machines. Um, and so this is going to continue to happen and probably at an accelerated rate. Um, but we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be dreading this future. Yeah. Um, there is opportunity in all change um, and the world won't stop changing just because um, some people don't want it to. So it's about understanding what the horizon looks like and trying to capitalize on the change that is, that is ahead of us. That was futurist and entrepreneur Jamie Skeller talking about something I absolutely believe in and is one of the driving factors of why I started this podcast and Futures Collective as a whole. Technology like artificial intelligence is automating and replacing jobs. There's no doubt about that. But there's also incredible opportunities that can come out of all this innovation if we foster what makes us unique as humans and cultivate an educational culture that helps us make the most of the opportunities that are presented to us. Now, Jamie has spent 20 years in the design, building, and advising of businesses across blockchain, esports, machine learning, and even future food. So it's incredibly exciting to hear him just as optimistic as I am about the future. He's formerly been the executive director at MyVote and is now the co-founder of Horizon State, who are redesigning how societies collectively make decisions using distributed ledger technology. Let's dive in. So thanks, Jamie, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So why don't you just give us a bit of um, an idea about your background, you know, where you grew up and what your childhood was like. Sure. Um, I grew up in uh, primarily in a suburb in South Australia called uh, Salisbury, which is a relatively low uh, social economic area of, of the country. But I moved around a lot as a kid as well. Um, lived in, in Darwin for quite some time. Um, my dad owned... Um, uh, a private investigator business and there was an office up there. So we, we sort of went back and forth a bit. I, I think I spent about eight years in Darwin, uh, many more in Adelaide. Um, and, and I've also moved around uh, a bit more since then as well in my professional life to uh, Brisbane and Sydney, here in Melbourne and uh, London as well. Um, but look, I think in terms of where I've wound up and why in regards to this sort of career trajectory, it probably had a lot to do with my fascination with science and science fiction and, and technology as a youngster, um, getting my computer uh, relatively young. My parents bought me my first computer at 13 uh, and I very quickly discovered uh, this thing called the internet and the opportunity to, to be able to publish things to the rest of the world almost immediately, uh, which was this revelation for me, I think drove uh, more or less everything else I've done since. Yeah, definitely. No, that sounds like very much a novelty at the time. And so you definitely seem to have taken advantage of what you had. Um, what was school like for you as a very young kid and then moving into high school as well? School wasn't great. Um, <clears throat> I 
I was bullied a lot, so I think that had uh, that had a lot to do with with my negative uh, sort of perception of the environment and that experience. Mm. Um, I was a pretty shy kid. I was quite quiet, um, and with an interest in computers, I was a sort of a target for for the bullies. Um, I dropped out of high school um, in year ten or eleven. And to be honest, it was it was it was such a, a strange non-event for me in a weird way that I'm actually not certain if it was year ten or eleven. Um, and people are generally surprised that I, I didn't go through uni. Um, but all of the classes uh, in respect to multimedia and design and uh, programming and uh, computer science more generally, um, it was all stuff that I'd been doing for quite a few years already by that point. And so I, I just sort of stopped going to those classes um, until the point that one of the teachers said, look, I'm going to have to flunk you if you don't come. Um, but how about you teach the class for a couple of weeks and, and then we'll, we'll get you through with the pass. And that was sort of that was my signal, I think, uh, to get out and start doing something practical and tangible and meaningful with, with the skills that I'd already built up. And so I, I left school and went off to start a sort of design and, and development business. Yeah. And um, straight out of school, starting a business, what was that like? Um, it, was, it was challenging, but to me, it didn't really feel like uh, work. I was, I was doing stuff that was a hobby for me. So having having... Um, attained that that first computer and started playing around with Corel Draw and PaintShop Pro and uh, Front Page ninety eight and uh, writing uh, code in in, in Notepad. Um, this was stuff that I was doing um, out of experimentation because I enjoyed it. And mm -hmm. so then moving on to trying to build um, a, a, an income stream around that didn't really feel like too much of a chore. And because it was me as an independent freelancer or sole trader, I suppose there really wasn't too many business complexities. So for me, it was about doing as much pro bono work as I could for small businesses to build up a portfolio and then using that portfolio to then get paid work. Uh, it wasn't until I started building teams around me uh, that things got trickier and, and more business-like. Uh, at that point, it was really just getting paid for the stuff I enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, no, it was, I think taking a step to start a business straight out of high school is, even right now, a pretty big step. And so I can imagine... Um, you know, a couple of years ago when you did it, it would have been something quite out of the ordinary. Was there anyone else that you knew that had sort of gone through the same process? Not at that stage. Um, I think part of what, what drove me to do it was um, because of the skill set that I built up and my dissatisfaction uh, being in school. Um, but also I, I had... Um, I had a strange, a strange ambition to to be to be running things or to be building things, and so mm -hmm. f for me, the idea that um, I would create a business and um, potentially develop a brand name that would be recognised to me that was far more attractive than than going and finding work with somebody else within yeah. an existing business. I loved the idea that I'd be able to uh, grow something and call it my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And how did you find actually communicating and working with? Um, the owners of these small businesses? Because I'd, I'd imagine that they'd be uh, quite a lot older than you. Yeah, yeah, they were. I mean, most of them were, were pretty dismissive um, mm. initially, even when I was offering to do things for free. Uh, you know, I was just some kid. Uh, mm. And uh, in fact, back then, uh, you didn't necessarily have to have a website. Not every business yeah. owner was looking for a website yet. So it was, part, it was partly convincing people that they should have one uh, and, yeah. then, and then convincing them to work with me yeah. um, and doing it for free where, where required. Uh, but look, once you've got a portfolio, uh, your age tends to matter less. Once mm. you have uh, demonstrated experience, then again, your age matters less because if they can look at the quality of work yeah. and they can see some testimonials, as an example, um, then all of a sudden the confidence rises and yeah. uh, they're less dismissive. Yeah. I, I'm quite interested to know like how you persisted around that because you mentioned when you were quite 
uh, a bit younger than that as well, uh, confidence wasn't something that came to you quite easily. So how did you sort of persist through, you know, the rejection at first and continue to reach out to these um, owners? I think I, um, I, I had, I don't know, a bit of a, a bit of a fire in me in regards to wanting to succeed. And I, I suppose it comes from um, the environment that I grew up in, in the place, in the part of the world I was. Um, while I didn't know too much different, um, it was very obvious um, that my friends and the local community uh, wasn't particularly well off. Uh, you know, I had some friends that lived uh, just up at Golden Grove, which was in fact much nicer despite being one suburb over. And then of course you drive through some of these streets where houses are huge and, and it's clean and leafy. And so it was clear that um, there was sort of room to grow. There were places to go. You know, I, I wasn't being brought up in an environment where things were already top notch, which yeah. for, for me, I think provided um, some some inspiration to try and um, you know do things better and and, and make a, a better life than what existed right now. Uh, and this isn't to say that my life was bad. I had um, you know terrific parents and a, a wonderful home. Um, but in the big scheme of things, you know, still sort of lower middle class. Mm. And um, despite the fact I didn't want to think about classes, um, I, I understood what success meant, and I wanted to I wanted to sort of be somebody in a, in a weird kind of lame way, I suppose. I, I wanted to build something that people knew. Um, so I, I think that was um, an underlying motivation that sort of kept driving me, even when things seemed kind of kind of hopeless. But um, yeah, obviously things you know, worked out quite well in the end um, in respect to that forming a, a foundation for, for future opportunities. So that, that idea that I would do free work until the point that I was taken seriously, mm -hmm. I think in hindsight, it was, it was a good tactic, uh, but I didn't necessarily know if that was going to be the case at the time. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people now trying, like employing that tactics um, across their businesses. So definitely a bit of an early adopter <laughs> in that regard. But yeah, why don't you give it for those that, probably aren't familiar with your work, what you're doing right now. Sure. Um, so right now uh, is, is something called Horizon State. Um, founded Horizon State specifically um, not so long ago. It was really only um, sort of June, July, August that work kicked off properly. Mm -hmm. um, and Horizon State is a, a blockchain-based um, technology startup. Um, and by blockchain-based, I mean that we are utilizing distributed ledger technology, um, which enables a whole bunch of really great and innovative things. So if people haven't heard of the term blockchain or distributed ledger, um, you might have heard of Bitcoin. Uh, and so this technology is what makes Bitcoin possible. It just so happens that the uh, the technology that makes Bitcoin possible can also be applied in lots of really incredible ways um, to help move uh, society forward. Um, which are quite profound. I'll give a few examples. So what we're working on first and foremost is utilizing blockchain technology for voting. Mm. Um, in the same way that a Bitcoin transaction is immutable and irreversible, transparent and accountable, um, it makes um, sense to try and build uh, a voting system atop of it, which is what we've created. So we've retrofitted uh, what would be financial transactions on a blockchain to instead represent votes. So it's pretty profound. It's the first time in history that we've had the opportunity to create a kind of ballot box or record of result, which is unhackable. Mm. Um, and it's being used in some other awesome ways as well. So Power Ledger over in Perth are, uh, are utilizing it for peer-to-peer -peer energy trading. So Joe um, being able to sell his excess power from his solar panels to his neighbors directly, cutting costs um, and, and shifting what our economy looks like while steering profits away from some of the big energy mm. providers. 
You've got um, startups working on uh, Spotify, Spotify competitors, where instead of your 13 bucks going mostly to Spotify because of their huge overheads and desire to be um, a, a business with lots of money in the bank, instead that sort of $13 is split between the artists that you listen to. So you have a much more direct relationship and mm -hmm. artists are rewarded more fairly. Um, even things like file storage. So instead of storing your files with Dropbox, Instead, they're stored with the crowd. They're broken up into lots of pieces with redundancy, um, and only you have the keys required to access the files as a whole. But it means that we can move our files away from these centralized uh, corporate institutions uh, and start leveraging you know, the community to perform similar tasks. And so where do you think that, because that all sounds really great, but where do you think that leaves the people who not only own these businesses, businesses that are sort of being um, cut out in a way, but also like the many people that are probably working there and working under them. Look, I think it's not going to be um, a sort of an overnight change where mm. these businesses collapse. Um, the the progression um, toward this this more equitable, uh, decentralized uh, world using this new technology is still a ways off. I mean, all of the stuff that's going on right now, uh, these are the earliest of the earliest ideas. Mm. Um, and over time, uh, some of the good ideas will, will begin to see success and that will begin to shift some of the uh, power away from those existing institutions. So I suspect that over the next uh, 15 or maybe even 30 years, um, we'll start to see a lot of these big brand businesses uh, centralized in nature uh, using uh, existing internet ar architecture instead of new internet architecture, um, fading away slowly but surely. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see um, any, uh, yeah, any, any, any rapid um, change the status quo, yeah. uh, but it's certainly happening and it's all starting right now. Mm. So do you think that it's more around um, essentially businesses that are going to now be, be adjusting their models to facilitate this new decentralized and equitable um, economy in a way? Uh, and also in terms of the people that work there and young people growing up, you know, around like, what do we actually learn? What do we go around to be able to look towards work, the workforce into the future, do you think it's their specific skills, specific things that we should be looking towards learning and experiences that we should look towards getting? Mm. Um, look, I, what, what our workforce looks like into the uh, not-so-distant future, I think, is probably going to have a, a lot less to do with blockchain mm. and more to do with automation and AI. Mm. Um, obviously, it will have an effect. Uh, with blockchain, I think it's really just about a, a shifting of roles because... Yeah. For example, using the Spotify competitor example uh, based on blockchain, mm. there is still going to need, uh, there's still going to, to um, be need for a team that actually develops and supports that product. Um, but they will probably be um, set up as a foundation and not for profit um, or something to that effect. Mm. So they are taking only what's required, um, and still getting paid appropriately for their work. Mm. But it's not about building an empire and, and building, a, yeah. a, you know, a billion dollar business. It's about providing um, better technology and uh, improved systems to make sure that uh, the wealth is spread. So that, for yeah. example, the artists can get more of their share. I think, in regards to what young people should should be looking at right now. Um, funnily enough, it's not necessarily a popular thought. Um, there's a lot of talk right now uh, amongst parents, Gen Y and Gen X, um, about the importance of uh, kids learning to code. Mm. But as AI improves, um, I think coding is going to become more and more automated. And so I don't necessarily know if that is a good long-term um, career uh, yeah. proposition. It's It's more about focusing on soft skills. Uh, it's, yeah. it's about focusing on uh, creativity. It's about focusing on pursuits that are, uh, at least for the moment, um, very specifically human. 
Mm. Uh, things that we know that either the machines can't replicate yet or won't be able to replicate well or won't be able to replicate it for a long, long time. Yeah. Uh, so if you're, you know, um, if, if you're a driver, I think they're first in the firing line. We've already seen blue-collar workers be pushed out of factories in, in exchange for machines. Um, and so this is going to continue to happen and probably at an accelerated rate. Um, but we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be dreading this future. Yeah. Um, there is opportunity in all change um, and the world won't stop changing just because um, some people don't want it to. So it's about understanding what the horizon looks like and trying to capitalize on the change that is, that is ahead of us. Yeah, definitely. I uh, 100% agree with that, particularly, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of hype, I'd say, around coding being a skill for the future. And I very much agree with you and have a similar perspective in that it's probably not only going to be uh, automated in, in itself through AI, but also going to be something that is very much a commodity. Like everyone's going to have it. I, I'm, I think right. I know that schools are implementing uh, coding from younger ages now. And so again, it's going to be, you know, just like your high school degree or yep. a university degree that most people do have. Look, I think education is going to change a lot as well on that mm. point. Um, we're already at the point in time where curriculums can't keep up with the pace of change. Um, you know, in, in hindsight, I'm, um, you know, a lot of people criticize me for the decision at the time, but, but the idea that I was going to drop out of high school and not go to university um, wasn't necessarily a, a popular uh, pathway. Mm. Um, in hindsight, I think that it was relatively beneficial for me, given the fact that I'm not a lawyer or a doctor or something where I would obviously still encourage that, that tertiary education to mm. be undertaken uh, to its fullest. Um, if you are in the arts or you are in design or technology, these are industries where you don't necessarily need that kind of education. And in fact, it's in a, in a weird way, uh, in 2018, it's kind of, um, well, it has the opportunity to be detrimental because one of yeah. two things will happen. You're either learning um, old stuff or you're learning new stuff but not fast enough or you're learning stuff the same way that everybody else is being taught yeah. uh, instead of, uh, you know, something that is more uniquely you. Um, mm. Self-education is critical. Uh, I think if you aren't spending uh, at least an hour or more each day reading about the things you're curious about, mm. um, you're probably going to be on the on the back foot in this world of rapid change. It's really, really important um, to focus on the things that uh, that you're curious about and the things that you're passionate about and continue to learn uh, day by day. Yeah. I was actually listening into uh, one of Tim Ferriss's podcasts recently with act the actor Terry Crews from Brooklyn Nine-Nine and a few other things. And he's an incredible artist, among many things. So what he, he was talking about, particularly in relation to creativity. And so one of the things he had when he was younger was to design a chair. Uh, and he saw everyone else looking at, you know, great innovative designs of chairs and basing their ideas off that. Hmm. But what he thought of doing was he's not going to look at anything. He's going to think about what a chair means to him and design it from scratch. And he ended up, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, uh, or any of your listeners are familiar with the design of the lily pad chair. Um, you can have a look at it online. It's very interesting. It's essentially a chair on a table. Um, but he designed that himself. And, you know, all of the, the judges were like, this is, we've never seen anything like it. Mm -hmm. And this is the best, like, design by far. It's because he did it, you know, 100% through his own creativity. Yeah. And it wasn't um, influenced by anything else. I think going going back to... Uh, basics or first principles is obviously is, is often a really really valuable part of creating real innovation so I've, mm. I've been involved in sort of user experience design and technology design uh, in large for the last 15 20 years mm. um, and what you can 
quickly find, especially in a, in a modern world where agile processes amongst uh, teams are now so common, is that you continue to iterate um, upon the last version without necessarily trying to rethink um, the problem to begin with. And yeah. so when you begin to iterate rapidly, eventually you probably will end up in a place where um, you have gotten as, as far away um, from the, uh, the problem as possible while trying to solve um, for that problem in ways that don't necessarily relate anymore. You, you know, you're really basing it upon the existing product um, or the uh, uh, or the existing solution rather than thinking about the problem. So, uh, what has proven incredibly valuable for me over the years is is from time to time, when required, to actually take a step back and pretend that the existing product doesn't exist at all, yeah. uh, and reevaluate because. Society shifts, culture shifts, technology changes, markets shift. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes uh, starting again, uh, a big bang, as I call it, is, is, is sometimes beneficial. And is that sort of what you've done in terms of Horizon State, where the idea came out of? So the, the Horizon State idea was born out of some work I was doing uh, with a, a guy named Adam Jacoby, a really smart, intelligent fellow here in, uh, in Melbourne. And uh, he founded something called MyVote, which is spelled M-I-V-O-T-E. It's a... It's a not-for-profit democratic movement with a, a tremendously solid constitution and some great ideas for improving democracy. It's about um, running uh, independent candidates to win seats who will then reflect the will of the majority uh, and, importantly, an informed majority. Um, they will accept no corporate donations um, and anybody serving in a seat can only do so for two terms max. And then it's about mentoring the next person. It's not about careers or fame games. It's about performing your civic duty. Um, now, when I say informed majority, what I mean is that instead of just getting people to, to vote on issues that affect them as those issues happen, which unto itself is already an improvement over our current system, it's about making sure that people have better information. So rather than basing those decisions on what they've seen on Channel 7 News or read in uh, the advertiser, whatever the case is, um, instead it's about providing them information which is collaborated on by uh, people from the USA, people from Australia, people from China, from the left of politics, from the right of politics, and creating a relatively objective and relatively unbiased view of the situation so that people can make better decisions, not just decisions faster, but in fact better ones and thus better outcomes. Um, now, obviously, all the information is interpreted with some bias, yeah. but it's still unarguably a step ahead of most of uh, whatever else people could digest before making those decisions. Now, my vote, um, based on this uh, this vision, needed to be able to engage people frequently and with the media scene regularly. Um, so the internet had to be used because setting up, you know, uh, ballot boxes, uh, polling stations, or postal votes takes too long. It's too expensive. Um, and so I'd been doing a lot of blockchain research at the time, and it seemed to me that a distributed ledger uh, would be the perfect fit to enable us to start having uh, these votes online with, with the uh, appropriate amount of security uh, to provide the confidence that the result isn't being tampered with. Mm. Um, so yes, I mean, in this instance, it was, um, it was trying to look at the problem, um, and it just so happens there was a good piece of technology that we could apply to, to solve the problem, a brand new piece of technology, yeah. And so in terms of democracy, like going a bit deeper into that, what do you see um, as the biggest flaws in the, the current system that we do have? And um, what do you see potentially the, the right democracy looking like into the future? Uh, personally, um, my ideology aligns relatively closely uh, to my vote. I think they've just about got it right because it addresses a whole bunch of the things that, that I personally think are wrong with our current system. Right now, um, we have people who are not subject matter experts effectively calling the shots. Um, 
Now, obviously, they have advisors um, and they uh, try and get the best information they can most of the time. Um, but the entire system is, is plagued um, by spin and misinformation. People are more worried about holding on to power than they are about making the right decisions. Uh, media bias plays a role. Uh, we, we see um, lobbying funds also shifting the direction of the country instead of what is necessarily the best direction for the country. Uh, the fame games, obviously, inf infuriating. Um, the latest... Um, Plebiscite, the same-sex marriage vote, yeah. uh, which was non-binding, mind you. I think this was testament to, to just how thing, how broken things are. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've elected these representatives to make good decisions for us. Um, and then in a strange way, they've said, actually, uh, we're going to get the public to make a decision, but not really because we can still say no if, if we don't like what their yeah. decision is. And it's going to cost you, the people, $120 million. So it's absurd. Um, and so... Obviously, things need to change into the future. Uh, we need to make sure that we take the money out of politics. We need to take sure that it, we, we need to make sure that it becomes more about policy than it does about personalities and parties. Yeah. Um, and these are the sorts of concepts that my vote is building toward. Um, and what I hope that our technology can enable with more and more movements and more and more governments around yeah. the world. Um, of you know, looking further towards the horizon, what our technology will enable is not just to be able to conduct, for example, something like the same-sex marriage vote um, in two weeks instead of two months and for $2 million instead of $122 million. Um, but over time, because it is now secure and easy to vote from your pocket, um, we should be having conversations with our governing bodies more and more frequently uh, instead of waiting every few years, which is more or less the case at the moment. And I think as well that extra level of accountability will definitely lead towards politicians right. being more authentic and genuine yeah, yeah. Um, because they they don't really have much room to to move there in, in terms think, of the systems and the technologies that can potentially be implemented mm, to increase that accountability over the 100% and over the next sort of 5 to 10 years i think what we'll find is that this kind of technology whether it's horizon states platform or another similar one is that any government or uh, government representative or mayor or or whoever it is, uh, is is rejecting this technology, then I think it's going to be a pretty obvious red flag um, that there is corruption uh, in that uh, environment. Because mm -hmm. if you aren't willing um, to utilise technology which provides uh, accountability and transparency and security for the result, um, then what are you trying to hide? Yeah, absolutely. And... I mean, another big part in terms of our democracy and being able to ensure that it's as um, democratic as possible sure. is the influence. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, um, you know, with my vote, there's definitely doing things around that to make it a lot more um, unbiased and more centered around critical thinking being a driver That's right. in terms of decisions being made. But how about the media and the role that it plays in terms of influencing our decisions? Yeah, I think um, for a long time now, the, the mainstream news, the mainstream media, it's been clear that um, journalistic integrity has been degrading. Um, mm. And I don't think there'd be too many people that argue with that. There are fewer and fewer sources of um, legitimate investigative journalism which are worth paying attention to. I think some of the, the better sources uh, right now would be Al Jazeera and uh, SBS uh, in terms of television news. The rest, to be honest, um, I wouldn't even bother watching. And that includes the ABC now. I, I, I have uh, generally left tendencies with my political bias, um, 
But seeing that bias reflected uh, in the TV news that I'm watching means that I shouldn't be watching it anymore. I don't want to have my own beliefs reaffirmed. I want objective uh, information that I can consider critically. Um, the bigger worry, though, than, than the mainstream news, because everybody knows that it's, it's, it's kind of junk now, is actually um, where most people get their news, especially millennials, which is not from mainstream news. Uh, they get their news from places like Facebook uh, and from Reddit and wherever else. Facebook in particular has a major problem at the moment, which thankfully has been acknowledged and steps are being taken to try and improve. Quite recently, yeah. But um, yeah, it's, it is a worry um, because we see these um, these incredibly concentrated bubbles of um, evangelical beliefs um, rising to the to the surface, and it's creating a lot of conflict. And um, you know, it's it's unfortunate. And and I think um, as we sort of set offline uh, before we started recording, um, a, a real um, scary prospect right now is the technologies that have literally just arrived, where you can uh, record someone's voice or record uh, or download a video of them where they're speaking, um, and then their voice can be replicated uh, and be used to say whatever you like and make it look like they're really saying it. And of course, this is only going to drive misinformation and propaganda uh, even further than what it is now. So I think. Things might get worse before they get better. It's just really, really important that people, uh, as often as they can, instead of reading the reports, um, try and go to the source. You know, I actually find that most of the time, if you're interested in a certain conflict or a certain current event uh, that matters to you, um, then Wikipedia is actually a great source, uh, probably above anything else, Facebook, Twitter, uh, mainstream news, uh, because it is... Um, usually quite extensive and robust and comprehensive in regards to its coverage of that particular event. And it gives you the context required. Rather than just being a headline, uh, you get to understand a, a better version of the full picture. Um, but I think my main advice in regards to um, news and media at the moment um, is just to sort of stop consuming it, to be honest. Mm. I mean, I, I personally don't watch television news. I don't read any news websites. Um, I get most of my news from my feeds, from individuals, that cover things that I'm interested in, or, or I believe. So things like Medium. Yep. So so Medium, absolutely. Uh, Twitter is, is big for me. Uh, my sort of my morning news feed is actually my Twitter feed, and, and there I follow a whole bunch of um, people that I respect and uh, and and outlets and sources that I respect. But it's 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 99% people um, mm. because these are the people that are talking about things that typically matter to me. Um, and it's very easy to waste a lot of energy um, learning about the day's events when, in fact, most of the day's events um, don't matter to you and shouldn't matter yeah. to you. You know, if, if, if you identify causes that you want to work towards um, being a part of the solution for, uh, then focus on those things. You don't need to know about everything every day. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a weekly catch up on maybe some of the current events is fine because a lot of the time it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's pretty clear as well when you uh, essentially curate your your news intake where those biases are coming from mm. so you can yourself if there is and there definitely will be biases in people's opinions and what they write uh be okay. aware of that and acknowledge it yeah and look absolutely it's, it's incredibly important to do that uh for anybody that does have a look at the people that i'm following on twitter uh, I, I must say that me following them also doesn't doesn't mean that i endorse them uh, yeah. so it's really really important to not trap yourself in your own bubble and ensure that you do follow people that have maybe some controversial uh, controversial points of view that maybe don't think the same way on certain issues as you do because if you uh, if you stick yourself in your own bubble and uh, your world is constantly reaffirming then it's only going to uh, sort of in inflate the problems that we are beginning to see just now yeah i think as well make sure you have that balance of both um curiosity and understanding at the same time so being able to 
understand, you know, the context of where things are coming from, being able mm-hmm. to understand, um, you know, what, what people are trying to achieve out of what they're saying. Yeah. 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 Um, what are your thoughts around, you know, essentially, I'd like to know in your experience, it will spin the most valuable skills that intrinsically soft skills that you've had. And what do you think are probably really important soft skills that young people should be having into the future? Um, I think, look, I'm not sure if they, they fit perfectly into the definition of soft skills. I, mm. I suppose they do in a way, yeah. but, but for me, um, I think two things which have attributed, um, to, to where I've gone so far, um, is passion. Um, and, and I know that's completely cliche, but I'll go into it. I'll go into a bit more detail about that in just a mm. moment, but also risk, um, mm. trying to extend my appetite for risk and my risk profile because with big risk comes potential big reward. Now you always have to prepare yourself for the worst and then you're going to land on your ass instead of on your feet. But if, if you are always working towards considering what the worst case scenario is, then it's never going to be surprising. And so if you have an option, if there is a fork in the road, one potentially leads to grand um, benefit or success or furthering of whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, um, but you understand what the risks are, um, then it's really about um, trying to uh, weigh up whether you would prefer something safer or whether you'd prefer to take the risk, understanding how far you might fall if that risk doesn't mm. work out uh, and making sure that, um, you know, that is fully appreciated um, so that if, if mistakes are made and uh, you do fall, that you're ready to get back on your feet uh, because you understood what was, what, what was at stake. Now, in regards to passion, um, I, I've, I've long been a, a firm believer that you can't be good at anything. Um, you can't be truly great at anything, I should say, uh, unless you are actually passionate about that thing. Mm. Um, mediocrity uh, doesn't win awards. Well, actually, it does in, in school in some situations now, but which I find um, a little bit odd in some ways. But um, the, the, the point is that um, if you're not doing what you're passionate about, then you should never expect... Um, to do great things. Uh, you should never expect to see maybe the kind of success that you see for yourself in your personal life if in your professional life you're doing things which you don't really care about. Uh, and it's okay to do jobs that you don't necessarily care about as long as you have some plan or some uh, some vision, some sight of those goalposts and where you want to get to and you're making sure that you're, you're taking the right steps uh, to be involved in the things that you actually care about, that you can be passionate about. And as a byproduct of being passionate about it, uh, you can be great at it. And once you're great at something, um, then life just starts to work a lot better mm. and you start to see some of the rewards that you might uh, imagine for yourself. Yeah, and how, how do you think, you know, if there's any uh, thing or a couple of things that we can do to actually look towards finding what our passion is? Because, I mean, there's so much stuff out there. I'm sure a lot, particularly I know a lot of young people myself that care about a lot of issues. Yep. But how do we find that, you know, that one thing that's actually what we're probably most passionate about? Um, look, for, for me, I, I started from the perspective of what skills do I have? And in mm. fact, I've applied that now to, to many industries and many causes. So mm. for me, what interested me was actually, well, initially at least, was, was very much um, tactile um, uh, processes, uh, being on the tools, uh, writing code, uh, mm. designing interfaces. So for me, it didn't necessarily matter what I was designing for at the time, I just wanted to design. Mm. It didn't matter what, what what industry this website was for, I just wanted to build a website. Um, now, not everybody has hobbies like that, um, which is um, 
you know, it makes things harder. If, if you don't have, if, if you're listening to this podcast and, and something doesn't spring to mind in terms of, oh, this is actually what I enjoy doing. This is the thing that I do in my spare time, which I like, mm. then it's harder because you've still got um, an exploratory journey, which you need mm. to commence, start experimenting, start trying new things, uh, start to try and um, get a feel for, for what you actually really enjoy in life. Maybe it's videography. Maybe you love wielding a camera. Um, maybe it's surfing, uh, you know, and, that, and that's okay. Uh, the point is that if, if you truly enjoy it, if you can be passionate about it, then whether it's surfing um, or designing silicon chips, uh, then that's something that, yeah. you can, uh, that you can hopefully look towards, um, you know, creating a career in. Yeah, I think as well what's been traditionally viewed as um, an unattainable pathway, an unattainable career, or you're not able to make something out of the passion that you actually have, there's a lot of opportunities now to actually make that possible. Yeah, more than ever before. Yeah. And, I, and I think it's really important for people to to recognize this because once upon a time, um, before the world, uh, well, before it became globalized to the point it is now, before the internet existed, before computers existed, um, sometimes it was entirely impractical uh, and or impossible to make a living out of the things that you truly enjoyed. Yeah. For example, I think a great a great example of this is arts and crafts, right? I, I know I know quite a few women in my life around Australia and the world um, who have created online marketplaces or utilise online marketplaces such as Etsy or eBay or whatever um, to to basically sell their wares, you know, to mm. to to um, get the word out about the cool stuff they're they're um, um, knitting or painting or whatever the case is, yeah. and actually have a global audience um, to procure whatever it is uh, they're creating. So uh, it doesn't have to be grand. I mean, you don't have to be thinking about, you know, I want to be the president or I want to be a Bill Gates. Uh, mm -hmm. Whatever makes you happy um, will probably continue to make you happy. And I think for some people, the, the challenge is reconciling that what makes them happy, what they really enjoy, probably isn't going to be a $150,000 salary or yeah. it's not going to be a, a ticket to a million bucks. But uh, but um, I can tell you, I, I know some um, some very, very uh, wealthy investors um, through the processes I've been with startups um, and, and these people swear to me that um, it's the things that we read, um, these memes about, you know, money isn't everything, um, it, they swear it's true. You know, they say money uh, solves one problem, really, and that's your money problems. <laughs> but once you, once you get to the point where you are at around um, an eighty or $90,000 sort of income per year, um, your lifestyle doesn't necessarily change that much when you start earning more unless you want to become more extravagant. But doing the things you love um, is going to keep you happy as long as um, you don't also have, um, you know, some sort of fascination with our future grandeur. Mm. And for me, at least in terms of finding what you do love, it very much to me came out of looking at things in a different light from the perspective of actually trying to understand um, the context of things that I'm looking at. So for example, I, you know, education, innovation, startup space as well, understanding why it's important, what, where this can go. And then actually, you know, being able to find my passion through that understanding that I have. Mm -hmm. um, would you feel like it, it was quite similar to yeah, you? Yeah, I, I, uh, I think what you're effectively describing is, is curiosity, mm. right? And it's, it's about understanding what you enjoy now. Um, I mean, so my, my pathway has been quite interesting in that for the longest period it has been about designing, but designing um, in very broad terms. It's gone from designing interfaces um, from an aesthetic perspective um, to designing entire technologies um, mm. and designing entire businesses 
And so again, it comes back to the point I made at the start of our conversation about I had this uh, I had this sort of seemingly almost innate drive to want to create stuff. Um, mm. And for me, it didn't really ma- it didn't really matter so much what I was creating. Um, I just wanted to work on um, technology that was emerging, stuff that I considered mm. cool and that I thought could be um, wielded in ways to to benefit people in small and, and big ways. And so, you know, that that carried me through to where I am now because of um, curiosity. Uh, mm. You know, it's obviously very different designing a business as it is to do- designing an interface. Um, but if, if you have that curiosity um, and the passion, then learning about anything is, is not particularly hard. Richard Branson's got a great saying that if you get offered a great job, but you don't know how to do it, take it and learn on the job. Yeah. And this is entirely possible for everybody um, because I've done it numerous times yeah. as long as... You have the right mindset. Yeah, you, you've yeah. got to have that passion. You've got to have the curiosity. You've got to uh, be willing to do that because um, I also know lots of people who have taken really good jobs and then there's mm. been a whole lot about the job which they didn't like and thus they've um, decided to, to leave. This isn't because they couldn't have done it. They absolutely could have. Now, uh, you know, we have Google and there's lots of great resources to learn pretty much anything yeah. and learn it fast, but it's just that they, they didn't want to do it. And, yeah. th- and that's fine as well. This this comes straight back to the last part of the conversation about identifying what you enjoy and, and obviously trying to continue to pursue that um, in large as often as you can. Yeah. And um, the last thing I did want to ask you, Jamie, today was... I mean, Horizon State, essentially the ideas behind it really comes towards making a better world um, Mm. for us. And, you know, that important, what I think is really important is a positive social impact out of anything you do. So for young people who want to have a positive social impact, whatever, through whatever avenue that may be, what advice do you have for for those who, you know, see the problem, you know, at, at its core and, you know, really big issue? What are things that we can do to essentially be able to take steps towards um, addressing it. Okay, I guess there's, there's sort of two angles you can take uh, in respect to the issues that you might want to help be a part of um, the solution for. Mm. Um, and that is either um, from a distance appreciating um, what might be required to further that. Um, mm. And it might be something completely out of the box. It might be something completely innovative. And maybe you want to start thinking about new ways that the problem can be tackled and building um, a, a sort of a group of like-minded individuals with complementary skills who can who can actually start to, to tackle it in the way that you think is best. Mm. Alternatively, um, it's to look at existing organizations, be those foundations or not-for-profits or, or indeed, um, you know, capitalist for-profit institutions that are working towards having a positive effect in relation to that cause mm. and um, basically putting your hand up and saying, look, uh, where can I help? I'll, I'll more or less do anything. And, and this comes this comes down to whether what's going to make you happy is doing anything for that cause. So maybe um, maybe you'll be in um, administration. Maybe you'll be in sales. Maybe you will be in HR. Like if if you don't so much care what you're do- doing, but you're willing to become good at that for the cause, then you can pretty much approach any institution or organization which is already trying to tackle it. On the flip side, um, if there are causes that you know you want to uh, work towards solving, um, but there are specific things you want to be doing, then I guess it's about identifying the organizations who might have a hole there, a skill set gap. And you can say, look, um, I happen to be a web developer, or I happen to be um, an analyst or a researcher, or you know, whatever it might be and saying, I think I can help, um, you know, accelerate things with you. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure I definitely got like a lot of great insights out of what you had to say. And I'm sure everyone listening in did too. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you.
Hello, thank you so much for listening into this podcast. I really do appreciate it. Just got two quick things I want to say. First of all, is please leave a review of this podcast, especially you know if you're listening in on iTunes. What it means is that more people are able to see and access this podcast, and hopefully can impact um, you know young people across the world. Secondly, I just want to say that the music you just heard is created by and produced by local Canberra artist Slack. Um, if you like what you hear, please give her a follow, keep up with her stuff on Slack underscore Oz at SoundCloud or Slack Australia on Facebook. Thanks guys.